Thanks, Terry. During um, World War II, there were many brave people who housed Jewish refugees that were escaping Nazi Germany. And among those were two Dutch women by the names of Cory and, I had it, Betsy. Cory and Betsy Tenboom. However, they were found out by the Nazis, and they were sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp, where they were treated as subhuman, endured malnutrition, and where Betsy would eventually die. Corey, however, would survive, be released, and years later, after the war, she felt compelled to travel throughout Germany as a Christian woman, preaching a message of forgiveness to the German church. But one day when she was speaking at a church in Munich in 1947, there in the back of the church, she recognized a man. He had been one of the guards at Ravensbrück, and he was partially responsible for the death of her sister. He obviously did not recognize her, however. How could he, since he had partaken in the mistreatment and death of thousands? However, after the church, the former SS man approached Corey and said, A fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And he extended his hand out to reach and shake Corey's hand. How do you think, she responded, how do you think you would have responded if you were in her shoes? We're talking about forgiveness this morning, and we're doing that for a couple of reasons. First and foremost, because forgiveness is at the heart of the gospel. It's the very thing that the cross symbolizes. And so as we enter into the story of the cross in preparation for Good Friday and Easter, forgiveness is a very fitting message. The second reason for choosing this topic is because it actually acts as a bridge from our faith and finance series to Easter. You see, we have been talking a lot about generosity in previous weeks, about this God of ours who is at the very core a giver. But just as God is a giver, he's also a forgiver. And in fact, before creation came to be, God had already planned to forgive and redeem the world that he would create, knowing that it would be corrupted by sin, knowing that we would hurt one another, knowing that we would turn away from him. I believe this is implied in Ephesians 1, 3 through 5, which says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, it says, he predestined us for adoption to sonship or daughtership through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and goodwill. Forgiveness is a unique type of gift that we receive, and it's a gift that we have the power to give. And so forgiveness is directly tied into this whole theme of generosity we've been exploring over the last few months. Forgiveness is hard though, isn't it? Why is it so difficult to forgive? Of course, it's much easier to give somebody a present than it is to forgive them, right? Why is that? Well, 
Miroslav Volf, in his book Free of Charge, which I've kind of been using um, throughout this series on generosity, the second half of his book is all on forgiveness. And he summarizes this difficulty quite simply. He says, we give gifts when we delight in someone, right? It's fun giving gifts and seeing the joy on people's faces. But we forgive when somebody has wronged us. And so there's a burden, there's a heaviness, there's something that we carry. Another reason why it's difficult is that we live, he argues, in a culture stripped of grace, where forgiveness is not the way of the world, especially not here in the Western world. North American culture has become highly litigious. In other words, our culture is quick to sue and slow to forgive. Now, sometimes a suit is for just causes, right? For example, medical malpractice causing someone their ability to work and not able to earn. There is some recompense that needs to happen there, right? But far too often, more often than not, litigation suits are not about seeking justice. They're about vengeance or greed, extracting the maximal compensation from someone, oftentimes for ridiculous reasons. For example, suing a restaurant because their coffee was too hot. Go on to any social media site and start reading the comments on any contentious issue. I don't know why I do this, but sometimes I do. And you will quickly realize that our culture is not fueled by grace and forgiveness. It is fueled by outrage and anger. Kids play video games where the whole point of the game is that you entertain unrestricted vengeance. Grand Theft Auto is a prime example of these types of games. And Wolf has researched a study that says Americans alone spend $7.3 billion a year on these types of video games. We might ask, might it influence the way our culture is going? Might it have something to say about our moral sensibilities? And we enjoy movies, right, where the protagonist who has been wrong goes on some kind of a self-justifying crusade of vengeance. And when we look at wars, they are rarely, if ever, just, right? They're, not, they're never just an eye-for-an-eye exchange. So how should we do, deal with wrongdoing? The way of the world deals with wrongdoing through vengeance. And yet the gospel reminds us that the upside-down way of King Jesus is forgiveness. And if you're like me, for many years I protested that, and I said, we don't need forgiveness, we need justice. And in order to have justice, we need punishment. But the problem with punishment Wolf argues in his book, is that it only satisfies what we would consider, let's say, mid-level offenses. When someone steals from a store, they need to pay up, right? And they're going to be banned from the store. When somebody robs a bank, they're going to have to pay a hefty fine and spend time in prison. These are just punishments. But punishment would not suffice for very high-level crimes. What would be adequate, what would be an adequate punishment for Hitler, who was responsible for mistreating, torturing, and killing approximately 11 million people? How about Joseph Stalin, who was responsible for 20 million? 
How many deaths would they have to die in order to pay for the lives that they took? Punishment is not adequate. But on the opposite end of the offenses, the really small ones, we actually don't want punishment, right? If we want punishment, it's got to be consistent. But for the little stuff, we don't actually want punishment. How would it... How would, it, how would we like it if we were punished for every small sin we committed, right? Every unkind thought, every lustful glance, every unkind word or sarcastic comment. Wolf concludes, punishment is a very rough and wholly inadequate tool for dealing with wrongdoing. And so we ask, if vengeance is not just, and if punishment is inadequate... What then is the proper response for dealing with wrongdoing? Well, Jesus says that it's forgiveness. And I'll confess, I have wrestled with this for many years, and I still do at times, especially when I feel like I have been wronged. Isn't forgiving simply pretending like the wrongdoing never happened? That's not fair. It did happen. Isn't forgiving simply minimizing the wrong by saying, It's okay, it's not a big deal, when in fact it was a big deal, and it's not okay. How then can forgiveness be the best way to deal with wrongdoing? Well, first we need to clarify what forgiveness is and is not. Forgiveness does not mean brushing off an offense by just saying, it's okay, it's not a big deal. Forgiveness does not mean you ignore the offense, Or pretend like it never happened. Forgiveness does not necessarily mean that there's no consequences to an offense, right? We we talked about how vengeance is not just, and in many cases, punishment is inadequate. However, discipline can still be a consequence when it is done with the purpose of restoring a person. That's called restorative justice, right? When my kids are being disrespectful or they're fighting... I forgive them, and Karis and I teach them to forgive one another. And the last few weeks have been a little rough, so I have also needed to ask for forgiveness because I lose my cool. But a consequence might still be that they lose their screen time for the weekend, or they lose the dessert after dinner. And this discipline stings, but it is meant to teach them that it's not okay to be unkind. So what then is forgiveness? Well, Miroslav Wolf, he describes forgiveness um, in two kind of elements or two-step process. He says the first part, which we actually sometimes ignore or maybe aren't even aware of, he says the first essential part of forgiveness is to name the wrongdoing. It's not to ignore it. It's actually to name it and to condemn it. And that's why vague blanket apologies are rarely satisfying, right? Oh, I'm sorry for anything I may or may not have done. It's like, that's not a sincere apology. No, part of it is actually naming the wrong that was done and condemning it. It's saying, hey, when you lied to me, that really hurt. And it actually damaged my trust in you. It was wrong. But if we just stopped at condemning, then the guilty part needed the guilty party stands accused but not forgiven. The second element to forgiveness, Wolf says, is to give wrongdoers the gift of not counting the wrongdoing against them. 
It's saying, hey, it hurt me when you lied to me and it was wrong, but I want to forgive you. I don't want to hold this against you. I know that we all make mistakes. I would like to repair our relationship and work toward regaining trust. So now that we properly get at least the basics of what forgiveness is, why should we forgive? This is Christianity 101. This is going back to the basics. We forgive because God has first forgiven us. Jesus teaches his disciples in the Lord's Prayer to pray daily, right? And so he's expecting us to hurt one another. And so he says, pray this daily. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Anyone with me? That is the hardest line for me to pray in that prayer. No, I'm alone? Okay, I see a few nods. Thank you. So we know what forgiveness is, and we know in theory why we need to forgive. So let's get real practical and join Peter in asking Jesus, okay, Jesus, but what is the limit? Like, let's brass tacks. Like, what's the limit? How many times does someone get to wrong me before I say, enough is enough? Is seven times adequate, Jesus? That seems pretty generous, right? A little Bible geek uh, tidbit for you as I was researching this, uh, this passage this week. There was a lot of discussion among Jewish teachers of the law about the extent to which a person should forgive someone. One school of thought said, you should forgive twice, but on strike three, you're out. And another slightly more gracious school of thought says, no, no, we should forgive three times. They like football rules better. Fourth down, ball is no longer yours, right? So Peter's suggestion for seven is actually above and beyond what the religious leaders would have required. Like Peter knows, okay, I've been hanging out with Jesus long enough to know he always sets the bar higher. So I'm going to be awesome at saying, should I forgive seven times? I know where he's going with this. And Jesus says, no. He says, not seven times, but 77 times. Or some of your translations say seven times 70, and we do the math, it's like, that's 490 times. So which is it, Jesus? Is it 77 or 490? (laughs) And if we try to figure that out, we've actually completely missed the point. You see, Jesus was not interested in doing forgiveness math. His little phrase there, 77 times, is actually a phrase that's only found one other time in the Bible. And when he said it, all of the Jewish uh, people who would have known their Bibles would have perked up and said, I recognize that phrase. And it's only found in one other place, and that's Genesis 4. What happens in Genesis 4? Well, it's the story of two brothers, Cain and Abel. Cain becomes jealous of his brother Abel, and he ends up killing him. And Cain, guilty of his sin, tells God he can't bear it. And he says, I'm afraid if anyone finds me, they're surely going to kill me. And then in Genesis 4.15, God assures Cain that no, no one will kill you. And it says this, the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And if you read the story, and it keeps going in the same chapter, this story goes on to tell us that Cain went on to build a city, city of Cain. And one of Cain's descendants, he was this macho bully named Lamech. 
He's the lame guy. And Lamech, I'm sorry, I had to do the dad joke there. I can't, I can't resist. Lamech encountered a guy who had crossed him. And so Lamech just ends up killing this guy, like father, like son. And then he boasts about it in this little pub song or a poem that we find in verses 23 to 24. It goes like this. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech is avenged 77 times. He's boasting about how his heart is bent on vengeance. And not much has changed in the world, has it? But the way of Jesus is the opposite. The way of Jesus is to extend forgiveness 77 times. The point of Jesus was not to give us a number or a limit. His point to Peter was that you should not put a limit on the amount of times that he's willing to forgive someone. And I got to be honest, I don't like that text. Because it makes me feel like, well, then where is justice? Like, when is enough enough, Jesus? But here again, we have to pause and we have to clarify something because this passage has been misused countless times in very damaging ways. It gets misunderstood by very well-intended Christians who think that it means that they just have to be a doormat for people. They just have to continue to take it, the same offense over and over. And it also gets misused to enable abusers to continue abusing. Let me be very clear, this is not what that passage is encouraging. In fact, if you read the section just prior to our passage today, Jesus talks about how we ought to deal with unrepentant Christians. How should we deal with somebody who has wronged us and is not willing to acknowledge it, is not willing to change their ways? Jesus talks about how we ought to deal with people like this. And if you pay attention, uh, Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, he points out that each time you address an unrepentant person about their sin, you need to be creating increasing levels of distance between you and that person and boundaries. That is biblical. That is appropriate. If you pay attention to those passages, the person who has been wronged is never alone with the wrongdoer again, is they, are they? First, it's a one-on-one. -on -one. Then you take someone with you. Then you take two or three people with you. And if there's still an issue, let the whole church community be involved and back you up. Moving on. Jesus says that our posture towards others is not to put a limit to how often we are willing to forgive. And then he follows it up with this story that Carrie read to us this morning. So let's break it down a little bit. Verse 23 says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servant. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Some of your translations might say 10,000 talents. How much is that in today's economy? Well, some scholars say it would be the equivalent of billions. Others say, no, it's actually more like trillions of dollars. The point, again, is not a specific number. 10,000 was the highest Greek numeral, commentators say. And a talent just means a boatload of money. 
Not quite literally, that's my interpretation, but it means a lot of money. The point Jesus is making is that this servant owed the king far more money than he could ever imagine to pay off in a lifetime, probably even multiple lifetimes. Verse 25, since he was not able to pay the master order that he and his family, he and his wife and his children and all they had be sold to repay the debt. This was common practice in ancient times. If someone could not repay a debt, oh, that person and their family became indebted slaves, essentially, and worked on the master's estate. This was justice. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him, saying, be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay you back everything. (laughs) Yeah, right. Do you think you could pay back a trillion dollars? No, this is supposed to sound comedically hopeless and desperate. There's no way the servant could have ever paid it off. But the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and he let him go. Notice those three ingredients to forgiveness right there. He took pity or showed compassion. He canceled the debt and he let him go free with a new lease on life. Pause and place yourself in that servant's shoes for a moment. How do you think this radical mercy and grace would have impacted the servant? It ought to have completely transformed him, right? I get a second chance at life. I am free from a debt that I could never pay off. I don't have to pay for it. My family doesn't have to pay for it. I'm free. But what what does the servant do? Verse 28, the servant went out. He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. In today's economy, that's roughly $4,000. Let's call it five with inflation. The point is it's mere pocket change in comparison to the debt that this servant owed the king. But nevertheless, he grabbed him and began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe me, he demanded. And his fellow servant fell on his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. Notice that it's the exact same line that this man had used with the king. But he refused, and instead he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay off the debt. Again, this is supposed to sound ridiculous, because it's not justice. This is vengeance. How can the man pay his debt when he's in prison and can't work? When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and started posting on Facebook. And then they told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said, I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me so. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant, just as I had on you? And in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. That's a hard-hitting parable. Parables are meant to do that. Parables are meant to be exaggerations. They are meant to have shock value, but that doesn't mean that they are not very serious. Forgiveness is a very big deal to Jesus, and he really wants his followers to get it. 
He wants them to get that it's not an optional extra for a disciple of Jesus. Rather, without forgiveness, they actually cannot be called followers of him. Jesus' point is that serious. But this last verse also needs some explanation. Because on the surface level, if you read it, I wonder, okay, is Jesus saying that God will only extend forgiveness to us after we've forgiven the people who've wronged us? Is he saying that if we don't forgive someone, that I'm in danger of losing my salvation and ending up in hell? Commentators say, no, that's not quite what Jesus was saying here. Tim Keller has a great teaching on this. And he says, no, that's actually not quite what Jesus was saying here. And he observes that if that were the case, if it were the case that God only forgives after we've forgiven, well, then it would mean that we're not saved by grace, but rather by earning our own salvation, right? And if we can earn our own salvation by forgiving others, Miroslav Volf says, then we don't need the gospel. Then Jesus wouldn't have had to die on the cross. So that can't be quite what this text means. So then how are we to understand this difficult passage? Well, the key to understanding is right in the parable. Verses 32 and 33. Then the master called the servant in and said, You wicked servant, I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? The point Jesus was making was this. If you recognize that you are a sinner in need of God's forgiveness, and we all are, and you experience God's mercy and grace for yourself, it will transform you. Tim Keller says, in other words, if you cannot forgive someone who's wronged you, then you actually have not experienced God's grace for your own life. Therefore, if a person is unwilling to forgive his debtors, he or she has not yet been impacted by God's forgiveness towards them. And the parable teaches us that each of us owe God more than we could ever repay. And if God would demand justice from each of us, from every single sin we commit on a daily basis, we could never be free. We would crumble underneath the weight of our own sin. Just payment would be our life and eternal death. But the good news of King Jesus is this. He, like the king in the parable, had compassion on us, absorbed the debt we owe, and offers us freedom and life and restored relationships with God and with our fellow humans and eternal life. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. That is just payment. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, if you have experienced and received God's radical forgiveness, then the natural response is to want to forgive others as well. Yes, it's still very hard because we are not God. We are human. Yes, it can take time and it can be a long process. And that's okay. And that's to be expected. But when we receive God's forgiveness, Jesus says, it actually has to flow out of us as well. And if God has forgiven both you and the person who has offended you, 
then you have the power to say, because God has forgiven me a sinner, and because God has forgiven you, I also must forgive you. And as I've been wrestling with this honestly with God, I sometimes tell him, God, what if I can't? Like, what if, like, I get that the Bible says I need to forgive. I know that you've forgiven me, but I'm having a really, really hard time letting go of somebody who's wounded me deeply. What if I can't? How do I forgive out of my own strength? And we return to the story that we started this morning. How did Corey Ten Boom, how did her story end? How did she respond to the former SS man wanting to shake her hand? The hand that had caused so much pain to her, that had partaken in causing her sister's death and the death of thousands of others. She describes it in her biography that she could not. Her hand remained frozen at her side and there was this awkward moment where the man reached out and she just stood there silently with her hand clenched and stuck to her side. The man then continued to tell her that he had been a guard at Ravensbrook, which she knew, but she, he didn't recognize her, right? He confessed to her, I was a guard at Ravensbrook, that, that camp that you talked about this morning. But he said, but I am now a Christian. And he says, I know that God had for, has forgiven me of the terrible things that I have done. And then he said again to Corey, but I would like to hear it from you. Will you forgive me? Once again, he reached out to shake her hands. And at that moment, Corey says she prayed silently, Jesus, help me. And as she slowly extended her hand into his, she said something happened. She said a warmth started in her shoulder and it went through her arm and into this other man. And suddenly she said she was overwhelmed with compassion. For this man that she had all reason to hate. And she responded, I forgive you, my brother, with all my heart. What her story illustrates so powerfully, this is a picture of her, by the way, is that on our own, we cannot forgive those who wrong us. It's impossible. On our own, we actually don't even have the power to forgive. Even the Pharisees got this one right when they told Jesus, only God has the power to forgive. But what happens to a person who comes to faith in Jesus is that they actually receive the spirit of Jesus in them. Paul describes it this way in Galatians 2.20. He says, it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And Miroslav Volf says, echoing those words of Paul, we can then say, it is not I who forgive, but Christ who forgives through me. How can we understand this mysterious union that we have with Christ? Martin Luther, for all his wrongs, he got something very clear about God's grace. And he illustrates this really well. He said that our union with Christ is kind of like putting an iron in the fire. If left, 
in the fire long enough, what happens to an iron? It starts to glow red hot, right? But it's not the iron that produces the glow or the heat, it's actually the fire. If you remove the iron from the fire, it actually just becomes just a cold iron again. But as long as the iron is in the fire, the iron will give off the same glow and heat that the fire has. And then he says, this is how it is with disciples of Jesus. When we abide in Christ, it is no longer just us who live. That's the one thing that the WWJD bracelets, anyone grow up in that era? That's one thing that they actually got wrong. It's not just us trying to mimic our way and be like Jesus. It's far deeper than that. It's Jesus in us, transforming us. He's animating us. This is beautiful. And I lost my place. <laughs> when Christ is in us, he forgives our debtors through us. So this morning, if you need to forgive someone who has wronged you, let this be an encouragement. An encouragement from a commentator who says this. He talks about the difficulty on forgiveness and he says, forgiveness becomes a little bit easier when we stop focusing so much on what others have done to us and we start focusing more on what Christ has done for us. And if you have not yet received God's God's forgiveness for yourself, know that Jesus died for you and is extending forgiveness to you for all the wrongs you've ever committed and everything you will commit, big or small. His invitation is simply for us to receive that forgiveness in faith with open hands. Would that be our invitation this morning? Amen. Let's pray as the worship team comes up. God, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. We know that we miss the mark in big ways and small ways every day. God, I know that if I were to settle accounts with you, my debt would be more than I can ever pay. But you, God, absorbed our debt Justice was done, but not that we had to pay for it, but that you took on our sin. You took on the penalty of our sin on the cross. And instead of counting our sin against us, you count Christ's righteousness towards us. What an amazing gift. So God, we ask that you would teach us not to focus so much on what others have done to us, but to focus increasingly more on what you have done for us. And as difficult as it may be at times, would you give us the power to forgive our debtors because you have first forgiven us. And Lord, where it is us that has wronged someone else, help us to see that, to be quick to confess and repent so that the generosity of your forgiveness would transform us and so that forgiveness can continue to flow out of us towards others. God, would it be true of us that it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. We give you praise, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.